You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine, produced in cooperation with AMDA. Your host is Dr. Eric Tangelos, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and a Certified Medical Director in Long-Term Care. Medical malpractice is a concern for all physicians, and especially those providing long-term care. In the absence of federal tort reform, how can physicians protect themselves from frivolous malpractice suits? Joining us to discuss risk management and liability is Matthew Corso, attorney at Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney. Mr. Corso focuses much of his practice on health care litigation and has represented physicians, hospitals, nursing homes, assisted living facilities, and administrators in medical malpractice trials. Counselor, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell us what's going on with regards to the developments and the trends in long-term care litigation that have occurred in the last few years. Well, I think what we're seeing across the country is an increase in litigation and an increase in the focus by plaintiff's attorneys on the long-term care industry as a potential defendant in medical malpractice or nursing home lawsuits. I practice in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, and anecdotally, we see an increase in litigation, not just in an increase in the number of lawsuits, but more diversity in the type of lawsuits that have been filed against long-term care facilities and the providers, healthcare providers associated with those facilities. So we've seen an increase then. Those are the trend lines. We'll talk a lot about the developments in terms of how you handle some of these things. But the diversity question catches my attention. So tell us about the claims that are most common and then go down the list for us all. Well, I think the type of claims that we see have generally stayed the same as far as the type of injuries. Pressure ulcers, I think, would probably be one of the leading type of lawsuits that we see. Falls, medication errors, neglect and abuse dehydration, failure to thrive, those type of more general type of claims are sort of the typical claims that you see in long-term care litigation. I think one of the changes that we've seen over the last few years have been some of the related parties, some of the owners and corporate owners of facilities, sometimes medical directors. Sometimes there is a distinction between the owner of the real estate of the property of the nursing home and the operators or management of the nursing home. So those are some of the different types of things that we've seen, some of the different theories of liability, different defendants that we've seen come up in the last few years. Now, some of the facilities you know, are what we call the ma and pa operations, very small, one ownership, one facility versus the large chains. Are they equally affected or is one more likely to have litigation than another? I guess the simple answer is any place can get sued. And I think that what we're seeing now is maybe plaintiff's lawyers who were maybe not as interested in taking some of these cases years ago because of the lack of economic damages. For example, many of these cases do not entail lost wages or future medical expenses or things like that. There's not the typical or traditional economic damages that you would have in a medical malpractice case. So I think that oftentimes plaintiff's lawyers who traditionally may not have looked at these cases because what they thought may be limited economic damages are more inclined to take a look at the case and evaluate those cases as as these type of cases get more publicity. And obviously, because there's an older population, more and more people are going into nursing homes and assisted living facilities and other type of long-term care facilities. There's more incidents that become known to plaintiffs and families and things like that. But I guess what I would add 
is that because there has been more media attention on the long-term care industry, that because there is an increase in the number of folks who are being taken care of, and I also think that the certainly the regulatory environment is becoming more well-known to plaintiff's attorneys, state and federal regulations that bind nursing homes. Tell us about the outcomes of some of these cases now. There's more you've said. How are they ending up? Well, I think that's a mixed bag. I know that in the states that I practice in, there have been some verdicts. There have been some successful plaintiff's verdicts, that's for sure. There have been other times where the defense has been successful. I think that what we do not have, unlike, for example, in Pennsylvania, there are pretty clear records and pretty clear track records of verdicts against physicians and hospitals in the various counties throughout Pennsylvania. Most of that is public record and is easily accessible. We don't have as much information as to verdicts against long-term care facilities because there just haven't been as many. And because of that, we don't really have a track record as far as being able to say certain values of cases or verdict values because we don't have the type of litigation record that we have seen in medical malpractice cases in these states. I think that is pretty clear throughout the country, but there are certainly stories from different locations where there have been large verdicts, and the opposite is true. There's been cases that have gone to trial and defense verdicts as well. All right. Well, our usual audience is medical professionals, physicians and medical directors, but I wouldn't be surprised that with the topic we haven't got a number of attorneys tuning in and perhaps an occasional state attorney general even. But sticking with what's important to the physicians, tell us something about the F tags that are out there now with regards to the medical director and where this is going to play out either in the next few years or where it's already played out. I was at a conference recently where FTAG 501 was discussed in reference to medical directors and the responsibilities of medical directors. And I think that tag is a few years old now. And I think that the definitions that have been set forth in that tag certainly are open to interpretation. Terms such as coordination of medical care, coordination of the care in the facility are broad and general terms. I haven't seen necessarily a rush for plaintiff's attorneys to name medical directors in cases. I think that there is some reluctance to do that. But I also think that it would, what it can do and what FTAG 501 seems to do is, at least through the regulations, increase the responsibilities or better define the responsibilities of the medical director. There are occasions where we've seen where medical directors have been named as defendants in cases. There are other times where medical directors have been asked to give depositions in cases where they are not involved as an attending physician or a treating physician at the facility. So I think that there are certainly a lot of different issues that come up in reference to that F-tag and the, the new definition under 501 and how that can play out in litigation. I know that plaintiff's attorneys can interpret that to mean and have interpreted it to mean that there are greater responsibilities and potentially, with emphasis on potentially, potentially different avenues of liability for a medical director. I think one of the interesting things about when we talk about a medical director are the two hats that medical directors often wear in nursing homes. Obviously, a medical director can be an attending physician for a particular resident who brings a lawsuit and have a situation where they are being sued in their capacity as an attending physician, but not sued in their capacity as a medical director. There's been situations where we've seen where there is a theory of liability 
that's pled by a plaintiff in a lawsuit against the medical director in their capacity as a medical director. And certainly I think one of the issues that we've seen come up year after year at AMDA is what is the relationship between a medical director and an attending physician, another attending physician at the facility who is actually treating and taking care of a resident, and what are what, if any, legal obligations are there for that medical director for the attending physician who is taking care of a, a resident at the facility. So these are all legal issues that are relatively new. Obviously, with the newness of FTAG 501, again, we don't have a long list of litigation or a long list of lawsuits that we can really discuss, but we're starting to see new issues come up. Plaintiff's lawyers are talking about these issues in conferences and things like that. So these are things that are being considered by plaintiff's lawyers. Sometimes we're seeing them in practice, and there's not a lot of, unfortunately at this point, there's not a lot of data to see how it's affecting medical directors and how it's affecting physicians to take care of patients at long-term care facilities. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Kangalos, and joining me to discuss risk management and liability is Mr. Matthew Corso, attorney at Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney. Mr. Corso focuses much of his practice on healthcare litigation and has represented physicians, hospitals, nursing homes, assisted living facilities, and administrators in medical malpractice trials. We need to continue the discussion a little bit more now with regards to risk management. We promised our audiences some more about risk management. And so from the perspective of the physician medical director and F501, what would you like to advise? I think that one of the issues I have spoken about over the years and as it applies to medical directors and physicians at nursing homes as it pertains to risk management, and it's going to sound like a broken record, is documentation. And I think that one of the great vulnerabilities of the long-term care industry are some of the misperceptions out there about responsibilities when it comes to documentation. For example, I think that many folks who bring lawsuits or plaintiff's lawyers who bring lawsuits are surprised to hear that a physician may only need to see a nursing home resident every 30 days. I think that oftentimes plaintiff's lawyers and families are surprised to hear that nurses don't have to document every day on a resident's condition. And I think that these are the type of things that a lot of times the medical profession, in this case the long-term care industry, has some difficulty reconciling when litigation does occur. So to answer your question, how can you help avoid some of these misperceptions or some of these lack of understanding that could, ha- could create an atmosphere for a lawsuit being filed? I really think you start with documentation. And again, oftentimes we'll hear, uh-oh, here comes another lawyer saying document better. But there are things that we see over and over again. And I think that there are certain vulnerabilities in certain areas Areas where plaintiff's lawyers look and they take a look at that and, and look for the flaws in documentation. An example of that would be the initial admission assessment. I think that many times the initial admission assessment is a great opportunity for a physician to not only set forth the care plan, but also to make sure that their patient and the family has reasonable expectations as to what that resident's conditions are. For example, I also think that the care plan is another opportunity where the physician and the nursing home and the long-term care facility, by documenting well, by documenting in a way that sets forth a real complete assessment and analysis of the resident's condition and offers a guide map to what that patient's medical history can be, really not only is good medicine, but I think it can be, in practice, can help prevent lawsuits by properly documenting 
the patient's pre-existing conditions, what their condition is upon admission, and what the realistic expectations are for treatment and what a reasonable prognosis might be upon admission to a nursing home. Very good. Well, documentation just isn't the lawyer's chant. AMDA has been chanting documentation no matter who gives the presentation, uh, and it certainly is an important part of the risk management and the opportunities there. You had talked a little bit about the accessible physician, one that is there. You talked a little bit about the 30-day rule. Expand on accessibility and how it might protect the patient, the physician, the facility. Well, I think that when you talk about accessibility, we don't have to venture too far from the traditional medical malpractice analysis you know, that we see in, in more typical cases against a physician in a hospital or in a private practice. I think the same thing that goes for those folks when it comes to bedside manner and being able to communicate, and not just communicate, but document communication, can be really an important aspect of risk management and malpractice avoidance. I've spoken over the years about a scenario where I've seen surgeons who have done a better job over the years of not just documenting their informed consent discussions with patients, but working on really clarifying and really putting in their speeches to their patients in anticipation of surgery, what's going to happen, what the risks are, what the alternatives are. And I think that one of the things, if the long-term care industry can take some of those examples and see how surgeons have, I think, done a better job over the years of protecting themselves against informed consent, and by the way, creating, fostering better communication with the patient, communicating better and documenting better, and I think not only is that good medicine, but it's good lawsuit malpractice avoidance. So I think that when it goes to those type of things, the bedside manner of the physician who explains, who talks, who communicates, and who documents, just as that family physician or that surgeon may avoid a lawsuit, so could a geriatrician or a medical director. Well, I would like to thank my guest, attorney at Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney, Mr. Matthew Corso. Mr. Corso, thank you very much for being our guest this week on Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine. Great. Thank you. You have been listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine from ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine is produced in cooperation with AMDA. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.